Welcome to episode 229 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. As you can hear, Stuart Baker has the week off, and it is another week of blockchain taking over the podcast. Uh, I'm Alan Cohn uh, of Counsel at Steptoe and Johnson, and also the co-chair of our blockchain and cryptocurrency practice. And I'm joined by uh, uh, several of the practitioners from our practice group this week, uh, along with a special guest interviewee. Uh, so first, to join us on the news roundup, uh, Maurice Schenk, a consultant in our London office, uh, an entrepreneur, uh, including uh, his involvement in a number of uh, blockchain-related companies. Uh, Charlie Mills, partner in our DC office, focused on uh, commodities regulation and, and activities before the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Um, attorneys Clara Blakey and Evan Abrams, uh, who work with our group and are going to be talking about securities and uh, anti-money laundering issues. Uh, and again, I'm Alan Cohn. Um, and uh, guest hosting this week in Stuart's absence. Um, we are also joined uh, as our guest interviewee uh, by Sarah Campani, an attorney for Bitfinex. Uh, Bitfinex is um, a full-featured spot trading platform for major digital assets and cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, uh, Ethereum, EOS, Litecoin, Ripple, NEO, uh, and a number of other uh, major cryptocurrencies and crypto tokens. Um, Bitfinex also offers leverage margin trading through a peer-to-peer -peer funding market um, and uh, has a number of other features uh, enabling cryptocurrency traders, purchasers, and sellers to take advantage of uh, different aspects of this new asset class. So uh, without further ado, let's jump into some of the news. And so what we want to do, uh, there have been a number of different developments since our uh, last episode of Blockchain Takes Over the Podcast. Um, and so we thought we would start with some developments involving the Commodity Futures Trading Commission um, and some litigation uh, that has taken place uh, that's kind of helping to clarify some of the jurisdictional boundaries in this area. So Charlie, maybe you can tell us about um, the uh, the amusingly named Cabbage Tech. <laughs> yes. Um, the CFTC has been very active in the blockchain and cryptocurrency area uh, for several years now. One of those areas is its enforcement program. Uh, and about 10 days ago, it had its first um, a litigated success against uh, defendants who were uh, accused of defrauding customers in soliciting uh, trading advice in cryptocurrency, including uh, Bitcoin uh, and others, and uh, misappropriating customer funds. So the CFTC had gotten involved in the cryptocurrency space back in 2015 to start, right? That's correct. In a um, an original settlement against a company called CoinFlip, which was uh, accused of uh, being a, a platform for trading cryptocurrency options uh, without being registered to do that with the CFTC. And in that case, uh, that settlement, the CFTC declared Bitcoin and other virtual currencies to be commodities, which is a fundamental need to do in order to have the Commodity Exchange Act apply to it and the CFTC's regulations. And so uh, with that, having them declared commodities 
Uh, they've gone forward on a number of fronts, uh, including registering uh, a swap execution facility and a uh, designated contract market to allow trading in swaps and futures contracts on Bitcoin. Uh, then in the enforcement area, uh, they've brought several cases, mainly against companies that would generally be considered retail fraud, where uh, like Cabbage Tech, the allegation is that, that people are, the, the defendants are soliciting funds from the public to trade their uh, funds in cryptocurrency or to give advice on trading and um, without being registered and doing it fraudulently. So what was Cabbage Tech doing? Cabbage Tech was soliciting uh, individuals principally, I think, from around the country. And uh, one customer I know from the case was in Canada, uh, asking them or, or soliciting them to give them, send them money, and they would give them advice on trading that money in the cryptocurrency markets and also provide uh, exchange, uh, the, the ability to exchange from one currency to another. And some of the advice, I th as the court opinion reads, uh, was going to be discretionary, where they would take your money and, and trade Bitcoin for uh, another currency. And um, what the court found after a full trial, although it was a peculiar trial, because the defendants did not appear, but the CFTC did appear and brought in witnesses, and the witnesses testified in the court's opinion, uh, quotes from their testimony in substantial part, and they the basic theme was they sent the money, they never got any service, uh, they never got their money back, and um, the defendants were uh, not doing what they were offering to do in their solicitations. So, but the 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 crux of the of the case, or at least what makes the case so interesting, isn't really the fraud aspects. We've seen a lot of we've seen fraud in this asset class that's you know unremarkable in the sense that. All asset classes have fraud associated with them, and the and the enforcement agencies are getting good at rooting out the, the fraudulent activity. So, what was the kind of the the, the real insight that we got out of this? Out the of this real case? insight, the most important thing from a legal perspective, is that the CFTC was applying its anti-fraud authority on what would be called spot or cash market transactions that had nothing to do with futures, swaps, or derivatives. And there is a question under the statute whether their power covers that activity. Um, and they've claimed that it does. Um, and this is a case where the court found that it did. The court also, in an earlier opinion in March, uh, reinforced their early, the CFTC, the agency's earlier finding that uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are commodities. And so uh, this is uh, an important facet because there is some debate about whether the, the commission's authority reaches into the cash markets. So you have two uh, things coming really out of this uh, litigation from a jurisdictional perspective. N number one, a reaffirmation or an affirmation uh, that um, the CFTC's, CFTC's position on virtual currencies, declaring them to be commodities under the Commodity Enforcement Act, is sound. The, the court supports that. Finding. That's correct. And then, even though um, the CFTC may not have authority to regulate spot trading itself, the commission does have the authority to uh, take action against fraud conducted in those spot markets and not, not simply in futures markets. 
that's is exactly that right? the case. Yeah. Yes. So what do you think the impact, uh, the upside of this is going to be? What, what, where do you think the CFTC goes from here? Well, I think it, it will encourage the CFTC to pursue uh, these principles uh, in the spot markets, uh, which is important because the spot markets also underlay the futures that are trading and some of the pricing of the futures contracts look to the spot markets. So uh, they're a critical piece of how um, market pricing is uh, done and how the C and the CFTC has been concerned about its lack of jurisdiction to regulate those spot markets. This gives it uh, clear authority to go into the spot markets where there's fraud or manipulation and prosecute it, which should be a deterrence to, to that sort of activity. And so, of course, we've seen the, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, um, indicate an increasing interest in the spot market from a broker-dealer perspective to the extent that crypto tokens uh, may, in fact, be securities and therefore fall under uh, the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. Do you think that this may indicate um, that the, the CFTC may have a, a clearer jurisdictional mandate uh, or interest in cryptocurrency exchanges where the underlying assets may, may in fact not be securities, but may still be commodities from the, from the commission's viewpoint? Yes, I think the CFTC has been very clear. Um, they care about the cryptocurrency markets. They care about the cash markets. Um, I think for the most part, they're not seeking to regulate them at this point, uh, but they are very concerned about fraud on retail customers or, or anyone. And then the, the tie that they have then to the derivatives trading in swaps and futures, which uh, the pricing of which uh, to some degree ties back into the cash markets. Great, great. Well, very interesting. It'll be interesting to see what happens now, obviously, when a, when a regulator kind of has this type of you know, kind of jurisdictional victory in court, it can sometimes um, signal that there may be more active involvement uh, in that area going forward. All right. Well, we talked a bit about the, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, what they're doing uh, in this space. And we, we started with their interest under the Securities Exchange Act. Um, but uh, they also have been uh, uh, active uh, with their jurisdiction uh, under the Securities Act of 1933, and, and in particular with some recent decisions uh, relating to new proposals around exchange-traded funds. So Claire, do you want to kind of tell us what, what's going on there? Sure. So there's been a lot of activity this summer over at the SEC about Bitcoin-based ex exchange-traded funds. Uh, the SEC has yet to approve a cryptocurrency-backed ETF, citing concerns about the lack of regulation of digital currency and its vulnerability to fraud and manipulation. But this issue is certainly not permanently settled. So I'll start with the timeline of the SEC's recent actions before turning to uh, a, a more in-depth look at their reasoning. Yeah, that's great, because I know people hear lots of different things about what's going on in this space. So I think, yeah, basic kind of what's going on on the ETF's timeline would be useful. Great. So... Um, so a couple months ago in July, the SEC denied Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss's proposed Bitcoin ETF. Um, uh, this is the Winklevoss twins of Facebook fame. Of yes. course, yes. Um, by a three to one vote, um, this was actually this, their second application um, to list and trade shares of their Bitcoin trust. 
Um, they first submitted a proposal in back in mid-2013, which was rejected by the SEC in March of 2017. So this fund would have held only Bitcoins as an asset and tracked the price of Bitcoin on the Gemini exchange. Uh, and the Gemini exchange is also owned by the Winklevoss twins, correct? That's right, yeah. yeah. So then about two weeks ago, the SEC rejected applications for nine Bitcoin-based ETFs from three separate companies, ProShares, Direction, and Granite Shares. But several days after its decision, the rejections were stayed pending review by the SEC commissioners. So is that new, the fact that the commissioners wanted to, to look at this question? Seems like it, right? Right. I mean, you know, in, in previous, uh, with, pre- with the previous denials, it's just kind of been a, a denial. But this was unusual because the, the commissioners kind of stepped in and said, we want to review that. Exactly. That's right. Although I would add that it doesn't necessarily indicate that a reversal is likely, Um just that, you know, at least one of the commissioners uh, were interested in, you know, taking this action and setting the process in motion. But and this was um, this was Commissioner Hester Pierce, right, who uh, who requested the reconsideration, making her uh, mo- at least momentarily a hero to the cryptocurrency uh, community. Um, she was quick to point out that it wasn't necessarily her. Uh, her uh, enamorment with the technology more than just concern about the way that the commission had made the de- the commission staff had made the decision, right? Right, and she was the she was also the commission um, dissented from the the Winklevoss decision. Right, right, right. So the the last um, item I'll mention is that there's at least one other Bitcoin propo- ETF proposal before the SEC. Um, the CBOE wants to list and trade SolidX Bitcoin shares, um, and these funds, this fund's creators have sought to address the SEC's concerns by, for example, setting an estimated 200,000 share price in order to limit um, the fund's appeal to in- institutional investors. And so in early August, SEC staff delayed a decision on this proposal. Interesting. So it'll be really interesting to see you know, whether we're, this is kind of indications that the SEC is beginning to soften its view on ETFs, or whether this is just more kind of bureaucratic machinations that's going to simply end us up in the same place. Right. So um, turning to the SEC's reasoning, this really comes down, all of these cases come down to their concerns about preventing fraud and protecting investors. Um, The Exchange Act Section 6B5 requires that the rules of a national securities exchange be designed to prevent fraudulent and manipulative acts and practices and protect investors in the public interest. So um, with respect to the Winklevoss's proposal, in some, the SEC found that um, they failed to establish that the various surveillance proposals um, of the, the BZX exchange were sufficient to protect investors from fraud. Um, more specifically, they said that the price of Bitcoin could be n- manipulated through activity on Bitcoin trading venues. They rejected the claim by BZX that it could monitor the Gemini exchange for potential price manipulation um, and and also rejected the Winklevoss's argument that Bitcoin spot markets are inherently resistant to manipulation due to the decentralized nature of blockchain technology. Yeah. And so this is interesting. This has been this persistent challenge of, you know, regardless of what the proponents of ETFs submit, the commission seems to continue just to voice doubt about the stability of the underlying asset. Right. So um, so as we mentioned, Commissioner Hester Pierce dissented in this case. Um, she seemed to be concerned about the decision stifling innovation. 
um, and argued that the, pr- the proposal met the 6B5 standard, um, saying also that her fellow commissioners focused too heavily on the shortcomings of the Bitcoin market and failed to properly consider the, the exchange's surveillance and fraud detection capabilities. Yeah, that's interesting again. And, and so we'll have to see if, you know, uh, kind of that perspective can win out over what just seems to be general skepticism about the technology and about the asset class. And then with respect to the the commission's denial of the, the, the more recent denial of the nine um, Bitcoin-based ETFs, they really just relied on on very similar reason, reasoning as they did in their earlier rejections, uh, mainly that there aren't enough protections against fraud and market manipulations of the, the underlying cryptocurrency um, products. And so in the case of the direction ETFs, for example, they said that the, the market for the underlying assets wasn't of sufficient size to ensure that prices weren't being manipulated on other exchanges. So it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, folks continue to try to craft exchange traded funds proposals uh, with the hope that, um, you know, at some point the commission will allow these through. Uh, so we will have to see whether um, whether the, the SEC, in fact, can get over their qualms about the asset class um, and perhaps evaluate the proposals on their face um, and begin to allow uh, exchange traded funds to uh, to enter the market. Well, great. Thank you, Claire. All right, so uh, switching gears uh, over to uh, anti-money laundering and kind of financial compliance issues, we had a couple of different things come up over the summer. Um, uh, first, uh, a, a, an interesting uh, speech uh, by the head of the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, right, Ken Blanco. Yes, that's right. Uh, and the speech was notable because the agency really has not said much of late about their approach to uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency, the kind of foundational guidance uh, is from 2013. Obviously, the industry has changed pretty dramatically in terms of business models and in terms of the technology. Uh, So companies uh, have been struggling somewhat to kind of fit that older regulation and guidance uh, with new business models and new technology. Uh, so, so the speech was closely watched in that regard. Yeah, interesting. And so, um, and so, Blanco said a couple of different things in there. Some of them that were kind of expected, and some of them that were a little unusual. So, yes, that's right. Uh, to, to my reading, I think there's kind of four key takeaways. Uh, one, which was somewhat expected, uh, was uh, the director reiterated that ICOs or initial coin offerings. Uh, are money transmitters, meaning they're a type of financial institution that's regulated by FinCEN. Uh, And the agency had said that before, uh, earlier this year, in a letter to Senator Ron Wyden. Uh, So that was uh, not particularly new, but interesting to hear from the director. And of course, this hasn't been said uh, by the agency in kind of formal guidance or in regulation yet. So we really just have this letter uh, and now the statement uh, from the director. Uh, yeah, and it'd be interesting to see how that gets effectuated, right? Because, of course, there's a question as to, you know, what does that mean about who needs to conduct what? Can that be outsourced to third parties? If you are using a model where there is a foundation that governs the platform and a, not, and a for-profit entity that, um, that maybe does the engineering work, who in that constellation of entities is, is the money transmitters, the, is the financial institution that has to 
um, maintain the compliance program and have the compliance officer conduct uh, the checks and, and, and how robust is that, does that need to be for this asset class? Yes, that's exactly right. There's still a lot of uh, uncertainty uh, with regard to the regulation of ICOs. And, uh, you know, as you alluded to, and then also just a question of generally, are all ICOs uh, uh, regulated as money transmitters? Uh, on the security side, of course, there's the question about the utility token. Uh, you have somewhat of a similar question on, on the AML side with regard to certain tokens that are really not meant to facilitate money transmission and whether or not those fall into certain exceptions within FinCEN's regulations. Uh, so there's still a number of unanswered questions uh, with respect to ICOs, uh, even after we have uh, the, the letter and now the speech from uh, Director Blanco. Okay, so we have the ICO issue. What else did Blanco talk about? Uh, so uh, one thing he, he mentioned that is going to be of interest uh, to a lot of people who are regulated by FinCEN is uh, an aggressive approach to uh, Bank Secrecy Act or BSA examinations. Uh, the Bank Secrecy Act is the statute underlying most of the anti-money laundering compliance obligations for uh, regulated financial institutions. Uh, the director said we have over 30% of uh, registered virtual currency exchanges and administrators that have been examined by FinCEN and by the IRS uh, Small Business Administration, which is their delegated examiner. Uh, and it's the goal of the agency to ensure that cryptocurrency uh, exchanges and administrators undergo regular routine examination. And those are pretty intrusive and expansive examinations. Uh, they involve usually an on-site visit from people from FinCEN and the IRS. They involve uh, review of the compliance program and related documents and even a review of raw data related to uh, exchange transactions or related to transactions uh, connected to the issuance of a token. Uh, so they're, they're pretty uh, intrusive and companies who might be uh, examined in the future are going to want to think about whether or not their compliance program uh, is up to par uh, in light of that kind of aggressive approach from the agency. Interesting. So really, pretty much any cryptocurrency exchange operator should be thinking very closely about their uh, their anti-money laundering compliance programs and what they need to do to make to ensure that they're complying with FinCEN regulations. That's right. Exchangers and also, as we were just discussing, uh, what, what the agency calls administrators, but what might more commonly be referred to as an issuer of a token, uh, an ICO, uh, and so forth. Great. Okay. So... We have the inspection piece. Yes. Then we get to some weird, some, some stuff that's a little odder, right? Uh, that's right. The, the director uh, in a number of instances in the speech referred to individual peer-to-peer -peer exchangers and businesses engaged in peer-to-peer -peer exchange uh, and suggested that they had FinCEN compliance obligations. Uh, but this may raise more questions uh, than it provides answers to. Uh, First of all, just what are the AML compliance obligations? But then, probably more interesting, uh, what uh, is an individual peer-to-peer -peer exchanger uh, or a business engaged in peer-to-peer -peer exchange? Uh, there's uh, you know a lot of popularity right now around decentralized exchanges. Uh, there's also kind of the older model of a centralized but non-custodial exchange, and there has been fairly persistent questions as to how uh, FinCEN regulations apply to those entities. Uh, I don't think this speech uh, necessarily uh, is going to answer those questions. Uh, it's probably going to, to raise more questions, but it is something to consider in reading the tea leaves with how uh, FinCEN is going to approach 
those type of exchange models going forward. Yeah, and so it's interesting. These are very different exchange models, right? A centralized but non-custodial exchange is something that, you know, that, that many of the exchanges that are brand names that people recognize, this is the way that they operate. There's a company that operates an exchange platform, individuals uh, onboard onto that platform, and then they... Uh, they engage in either buying or selling different types of cryptocurrencies from other people on the platform, with the platform taking a, a, a small percentage of the of the transaction. You know that that's a pretty well known uh, model, and uh, for the most part, at least at the federal level, it's pretty well understood what the what the 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 compliance obligations are. Though at the state level, it can vary. Um, decentralized exchanges is a much, it's a newer model and a much more open question about, you know, what, what in fact is the compliance model that applies to a decentralized exchange? Yeah, that's right. The, the non-custodial exchanges have, for the most part, at least the, the larger name brand ones, opted to comply with FinCEN regulations. I think there are some people, uh, some commentators out there who have questioned whether or not the underlying statute and regulations really give the agency authority to regulate those type of non-custodial exchanges, uh, but but for the most part, uh, they have uh, adopted FinCEN uh, AML compliance programs. Uh, the, the real question, as you alluded to, is going to be these decentralized exchanges, uh, and that, uh, at this point, is still pretty up in the air. Yeah, interesting. And so, um, what else, anything else that, that Blanco mentioned in this speech that kind of, you know, folks should be thinking about or aware of? Uh, one final point uh, that's, that's somewhat interesting. The director uh, noted that uh, he's going to be leading a special forum of financial intelligence units from different countries around the world that's going to be focused on cryptocurrency. Uh, a little bit unclear what's going to come out of that at this point, but something to keep an eye on. Uh, you know, if it leads to kind of increased harmonization and cooperation, uh, that would certainly be welcomed by the industry. Um, of course, it could also lead to more cross-border enforcement actions, uh, which might be less welcomed by some industry players. So we'll have to see how that plays out. Right, and it's interesting to contrast this area to the securities regulation area or the financial um, asset regulation area, where there's wide disparities between the way that international regulators have approached this issue. We've seen a little bit more consistency from the financial intelligence units. And so a, an interesting reference that that we might see even more collaboration and cooperation across um, international borders around these issues. That's right. And, and because you have the Financial Action uh, Task Force, or FATF, which is kind of the international standard setting body with respect to AML, that Basically, all major financial jurisdictions uh, have domestic uh, statutes and regulations to comply with. There is a little bit more uh, overlap with regard to the different regimes and various jurisdictions around the world. Of course, there's still pretty important and, and substantial differences in some instances. Yeah, no, very interesting. Okay, and then briefly, um, we also had the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency popping their head back up in this area as well, right? Yes, that's right. Uh, so the OCC uh, came out uh, last month, said they were going to start accepting licenses uh, for uh, special purpose national banks for fintech companies. Uh, there is some open questions here on the blockchain side, especially uh, with regard to what uh, type of blockchain entities uh, will actually be able to qualify for this license. Uh, the license is really uh, due to the OCC's mandate uh, for companies engaging in uh, core banking activities. Uh, so with regard to this fintech license for companies engaging 
uh, in either lending or, or check paying. Um, but of course, because it's focused on fintech, it's going to be focused on kind of the modern technological equivalents of those activities. Uh, and kind of how broad that is, which uh, blockchain or cryptocurrency entities are going to be able to fit within that license uh, has yet to, to be determined. But uh, it potentially is a big advantage for some entities who will be able to fit within it, because if you do get one of those licenses, uh, there is federal preemption uh, for many state licenses that you might otherwise need. So right now you have a lot of folks uh, who are operating uh, exchanges or uh, issuing tokens or so forth who have to go around and get 48 different state licenses, uh, which is a particularly difficult, cumbersome and expensive uh, venture. Uh, so obviously if you have the ability to get one uh, national license, that would be uh, considerably preferable. Um, but the LCC has, has kind of tried to get into this space before. And they faced a, uh, some pretty stiff resistance from the states. Do you think that we'll see that here as well? Yes. So there was a state, uh, a lawsuit brought by state regulators. Uh, initially, when the OCC announced they were thinking about doing this, uh, it was dismissed at the time because there was not actually final agency action uh, when the suit was brought. Uh, several state regulators have come out and made statements that they oppose uh, this new OCC license. Uh, so there's a possibility that that suit's going to be renewed and challenged in court, and we'll have to wait and see uh, how that all shakes out. Great. All right. Well, very interesting. So, uh, and finally, as our kind of roundup, let's turn uh, internationally um, and uh, and ask Maury, can you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, uh, maybe what the the EU finance ministers are uh, are looking at with respect to uh, to cryptocurrency regulation? Yeah. Sure. So. In the EU, while there's been regulatory action at the member state level, particularly from tax authorities, the central authority, in, in particular the European Central Bank, hasn't done nearly as much as, as U.S. authorities have uh, along the lines of what we've been hearing today on the podcast. But there is a meeting of the EU finance ministers this week on Friday in Vienna, Austria, and there's been a leaked confidential note, or at least reports of what's in the confidential note, that they're planning to discuss challenges for digital assets, including money laundering and lack of transparency, which may be um, code for some of the financial issues, uh, investor protection issues that we've been discussing from, like those from the CFTC and SEC. Interesting. Um, and so... Uh, kind of what's your sense of, of, of where their direction might go on this? Yeah, I, I think that there will be increasing international regulation of all of these things. EU tends to be um, more regulatory than the U.S., but slower moving. So yeah. my guess is that, you know, it's been slower moving so far uh, on cryptocurrency regulation. Um, but that at some point that it will catch up, particularly, you know, we've got extremely strict money laundering uh, rules in Europe, including under the fourth anti-money laundering directive that took, uh, took effect about a year ago, I believe. Um, and I think that there will be a significant catch up in that area. Yeah, it's been really interesting to see, Maury, as you say, that the Europeans tend to take a more heavily regulatory approach, but yet they, they have seemed to lag. At, especially at the EU level, um, certainly in the anti-money laundering area, um, and also at the asset regulation area, they have tended 
to it's been some of the national regulators that have gotten out in front um, and uh, and ESMA has been slower to to issue uh, kind of more specific guidance and, and has, has, has done more kind of broad general uh, general statements so it, it will be interesting to see as the as the Europeans really try to catch up there's also this European blockchain partnership can you tell us a bit about that yeah so that's an intergovernmental agreement that was signed in April. Um, I think 23 European countries, most of them EU member states, but not all. So it's broader than just it's, it's broader than just the EU. And it's, it's basically an agreement to promote blockchain for public services, although it has broader scope than that. Um, to follow on from the EU blockchain observatory, which is more research focused, uh, associated with up over 300 million euros of EU funding for blockchain projects. This one, by this month, uh, the, the signatories are supposed to agree a list of cross-border public services that could benefit from blockchain and other use cases, and then by the end of the year start to come up with technical specification. You know, this is an example of the EU being regulatory because this kind of stuff is left more to uh, private industry in the U.S., but the EU wants to make itself a leading place for blockchain um, by central action, um, that hasn't worked very well in the technology sector in general, and I doubt it will work right here, but that is the EU approach. <laughs> yes. Uh, it will be interesting to see whether um, the EU is actually able to, to kind of uh, stimulate entrepreneurialism through regulatory, quasi-regulatory mechanisms, um, or whether the um, uh, kind of a more hands-off approach will will prevail. The Europeans have definitely stated a preference, as you said, uh, to be leaders uh, in in the use of this technology. And it is interesting. The go government does have a number of levers by which they can encourage the use of the technology and the the development and piloting. It'll be interesting to see if this type of a governmental approach will lead to that kind of innovation. Yes. Time will tell, and Stuart Baker will have some choice words about whatever they try here in Europe. <laughs> As he does about about most anything that the Europeans do, at a minimum. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, good. Um, well, I think that's a good uh, snapshot of uh, some of the news that's that's taken place since, um, uh, since our last uh, Blockchain Takes Over the Podcast episode. Um, so I think this may be a good time for us to turn to our uh, our guest speaker um, and to talk a bit about some issues, some issues specifically uh, involving cryptocurrency exchanges. So Sarah Campani, uh, attorney for uh, for Bitfinex, um, thank you very much for joining us. And um, maybe you can just start by telling us a bit uh, about Bitfinex and the the trading platform, uh, Bitfinex's trading platform. Thanks, Alan. Thank you for inviting me. Um, Bitfinex was founded in 2012 and uh, was one of the first professional platforms. Um, therefore, it had time to develop very advanced features, especially security-wise, uh, given their history. Um, it has now invaluable experience in the space and has built upon it. Um, so I think it's a it's a good opportunity to to discuss about the security features on decentral uh, on centralized exchanges because as uh, 
uh, even mentioned earlier, there are two types of exchanges today, mainly on the market. There are centralized ones and decentralized ones. Um, there are many aspects that makes an exchange being decentralized or centralized, but to simplify, when you speak about a decentralized exchange, what you mean really is that the custody of funds remain in the hands of the user. But the problem today is that uh, mainly on decentralized exchanges, it's less convenient and there is less liquidity. So people are still oriented uh, towards centralized exchanges, although, um, as we can see, it would not make sense in terms of security to store their private keys on a centralized exchange. Yeah, no, no, no. I think that's right. And of course, we, um, uh, I think for the most part, the broader user, the broader kind of population uh, might be more familiar with the centralized exchange approach. Um, and uh, and there have been a number of, of uh, security challenges to that approach, everything from some well-reported um, uh, hacks to concerns about um, SMS spoofing and SIM card hacking to um, thefts of private keys or, or other things of people just simply uh, forgetting or misplacing uh, passwords, you know, as an exchange that's got that's had a lot of track record in the space, as you said, as one of the earliest exchanges, you know, how are you all approaching this question of security and some of the the best practices for security uh, by exchanges? So you're right. The, the hack greatly influenced the company's culture and management. And to be honest, I learned a lot just working with them because all decisions include a security-oriented aspect. Um, I like to think securing your account on a centralized exchange um, is just like securing your home, with the exception that instead of holding your home keys, a gatekeeper holds them for you. So let me clarify. Although you are legally the owner of your house, you cannot enter your house without the gatekeeper. It's the same here. You own the funds in the exchange, hot wallet or cold wallet, but you need the exchange if you want to withdraw the funds. So now imagine that you store very precious items in your house. It's not enough to simply lock the door. There are a thousand security measures that you can take to secure these valuable items. So the first question one should really ask themselves is, why would you keep valuable items in your house, especially when the keys are held by a third party? It's risky and it doesn't make sense. Why would you store digital assets in a centralized exchange when you could store them locally and secretly on, for example, a hardware wallet? This is the first question anyone who wishes to open an account on an exchange should ask themselves. If you don't need to trade, if you don't need to use the services offered on an exchange, don't put your money on that centralized exchange. It doesn't make sense. If you do need to use the exchange, think about diversifying them, open an account on different exchanges, and only leave the assets on the period of time that you really need to. Then if you want, I can go through various features of how to secure all this. But this is really the fundamental you need to understand before even putting your money on an exchange. Yeah, no, those are really good points. And they're not ones that are often kind of highlighted for folks when they think about entering this space, which is, of course, you have options for how you store your private keys. Um, and as you mentioned, a centralized exchange essentially um, you know, holds those funds for you. But you have... You have other options. A hardware wallet is essentially, uh, as you said, a piece of hardware. Almost, you know, there are many that look like uh, a specialized USB stick. 
where you can keep your keys uh, yourself. You can also even print them out and keep them uh, on, in, on a, in a paper form. Um, so that, that first question of whether you really need the functionality of the exchange platform, and if you don't, uh, whether you would be better holding your keys yourself is a really it's a really important question for people to uh, to consider. Now, of course, once you've made that decision, then there are some you know there are security considerations and, and security considerations that exchanges take as well um, that are that are useful to think about. Yes. Um, so what users really need to understand is obviously it's a it's a great decision to choose which exchange you will use to, to trade because the security feature of the exchange really matters. But the point of vulnerability today is the user itself. So let's say you are a little bit chatty or sometimes you like to brag about how much money you make. Uh, you post photos on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Telegram, you discuss. And by doing this, you are giving clues, not on a single day, like every once in a while, to a malicious third party. You're disclosing the fact that you own valuable items. Well, if you come back to the analogy, they still don't know where you, your address is. So they don't know, they know that you have those valuable items, but they don't know where they are. This is why you should never reveal your personal address, i.e. never tell on which exchange you trade. And you should never leave clues on social media enabling to associate your public key to your individual name. That means don't click on emails uh, with insecure uh, links, never reveal information about your account on the phone. Customer support will never call you randomly to ask about additional personal information. Unfortunately, there are still customers falling for that. Keep your passwords and account information secret at all time. However, in practice, hacks can be, of course, more elaborated. Uh, what happened recently, uh, instead of typing Bitfinex in the URL, customers can make a little typo. So the domain name looks very similar and the web page they land on looks identical to the homepage of the exchange. But once you enter the credentials to log in, it doesn't work and it's already too late. You've just posted your password and username on a hack attacker's server. Thank thankfully, there are many features, especially on Bitfinex, uh, that you can use to avoid, even if you gave your password and username to someone else, to avoid having your funds stolen. And uh, these are called good individual security practices, and you can go on the FAQ of Bitfinex, they're all detailed, but I'll, I'll give you a few of them. So the first thing that you can do, and for me really it's the basics, is to either enable a 2FA or use a U2F. So 2FA means two-factor authentication. It's a software-generated one-time passcode, that expires after a few seconds, and you need it to access your account. So the 2FA comes either on your computer or on your mobile phone. And once you have it set up, even if they have your password and username, unless they also steal your computer or steal your mobile phone, they cannot access your account. Then the U2F is simply a USB stick. So it could be, for example, a hardware wallet. And without that USB stick, plug into your computer, they cannot access your account. And what it does, it, it also encrypts all information. So even if there's a malicious software running on your computer, because there is this USB stick, then no one can read what you're typing. Then this is really the basics. Um, there are more advanced features on the platform uh, for people who are really, really security uh, oriented. 
Um, it's called IP whitelisting or de detect IP address change. So you give uh, Bitfinex your IP, static IP, and whenever someone else has your password, has stolen your mobile device, has stolen your computer, has stolen everything they could, they could still not access your account unless they're logging in from the exact same computer having the exact same IP than you on the account. And if the IP address has been changed and you didn't whitelist the IP, but you said this IP is the only one which can withdraw funds, if you log into your account with another IP, then the withdrawals are locked. So you and since um, by default Bitfinex sends emails every time you log into your account, if someone else than you has logged into your account, not only your funds are locked, but at any time you can just contact customer support and tell them just lock the account. It's not me, it's been hacked, and then we will freeze the account until we can ascertain that the person we're talking to is the real owner of the account. What strikes me, uh, you know, and what's been striking in, in hearing about uh, some of the more, the more recent hacks in the cryptocurrency community, um, and also the steps that exchanges like Bit Bitfinex are taking, both with respect to oh, customer awareness and also some of the internal security steps that are being taken, is that um, a lot of this should sound very, very familiar to longtime listeners of this podcast, because you, you see uh, the cryptocurrency world, particularly the exchange world, really converging with some of the best practices around cybersecurity generally. Um, and it's, it's been an interesting evolution uh, for an industry that maybe a couple of years ago was seen as somewhat removed from, uh, from mainstream cybersecurity issues and the types of, types of issues and topics that, that we might discuss here uh, to one where the industry is both grappling with the same types of issues uh, that, the, that the broader cybersecurity community is, is grappling with and, and arriving at many of the same kinds of solutions. Uh, so it's been a very interesting evolution to watch. Well, to be honest, as a as a lawyer, I'm pretty happy to to see this because, especially in Europe, um, we have this new regulation GDPR. Everyone talks about um, really having clients that ensure privacy of data uh, customers' data is not only a good experience for lawyers who need to learn themselves how to protect these data and what happens when there is a leak. But it's also, it's, it's the whole community who benefits from these best practices coming along, both customers, the, the whole ec ecosystem. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. So moving away from, from security per se, Sarah, what do you see as kind of the future for exchanges? What do you see as some of the, the major issues that exchanges are going to be confronting going forward? and some of the, the steps that you think that they, they'll be contributing to. You're, uh, do you mean in terms of uh, legal challenges or in challenges in general? Well, I think that it could be legal challenges from you know, a compliance perspective, um, uh, from a question of token listing standards, or, uh, or right. more broadly, things like accounting standards and others. Yes, definitely um, there are two types of challenges. Um, the first one is that all the questions that exchanges face are cross-borders cross issues. Uh, there is no one set of regulations that applies to, to us, and you really need to understand the, the, the various uh, laws and how they work. But certainly one of the other type of challenge is when the regulation doesn't exist at all. 
And in this situation, not only you need to think about um, inventive or creative ways of solving the issue, but also you need to pave the way and anticipate how regulators will later on deal with this topic. So it's really about predicting the future. It's as easy as this. Um, the three major points that um, exchanges will face uh, coming forward is probably stand fixing standards regarding the listing of token. So probably most important aspects are customer protection oriented ones, uh, require audits for smart contracts, uh, tracking ICO funds, uh, see the strength of the project or the team, the token's nature and functionality, uh, compliance measures that were taken during the ICO, which who, who worked on the project, etc. Then, um, compliance-wise, uh, rules applicable to fiat world are not well suited for uh, the crypto industry because there are many specificity attached to digital assets uh, because, let's say, they're programmable, because their price is volatile due to the absence of metrics. And exchanges help define such metrics, but a holistic approach is expected by the ecosystem. And uh, it is widely connected to the, to the next type of problem, which is accounting standards how to factor those digital assets in a balance sheet or simply in a corporate accounting system. On Bitfinex, you can make passive income by margin trading, or you can make interests uh, by holding certain types of tokens, or like even was uh, mentioning, decentralized exchanges now offer sometimes a feature where if you hold a token, then you can also benefit from uh, the whole value generated by the, the exchange itself. So how do you deal with this specific type of assets? And I don't even mention the hard forks, the airdrops, all of these things that create their own subcategories of difficulties for accountants. Uh, yeah, there are many challenges coming forward. So what do you see as some of the places where the rules that the compliance rules that are applied in the fiat world are going to have to either evolve or where new standards are going to need to be developed for the crypto world? So... I think it will go along with the question of metrics. Um, in cases where you have a threshold, for example, for reporting or for monitoring, uh, it's not easy to put a threshold as a single number because the prices are so volatile that a same operation today will maybe become uh, reach a threshold tomorrow while the customer even has not traded, but just because he held the, the token in his account and the value suddenly went up, then suddenly the threshold is met for the same type of transaction. So that really doesn't make sense. It's, it, it should be more about patterns and behavior. How do we, um, is, a, is, a, is a behavior normal? Is a, a trading pattern something uh, expected? Um, it, it, it's a tough question and, and certainly the banking sector and, and exchanges will need to cooperate together more um, because it's, it's about the bridge of getting outside the fiat world uh, to come into the crypto world or getting out or cash out from the exchange to go into the fiat world. This is really where um, people will need to work together and, and strengthen the, the compliance rules. Yeah, it's interesting. And we've talked about on previous episodes where we've talked about blockchain issues, how in the US you have securities regulators looking at as tokens or assets as securities. You have uh, FinCEN, as we talked about, looking at them as currencies. Um, uh, or as we talked about on this podcast, agencies like CFTC looking at, 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 at crypto assets through the lens of their own jurisdiction, where in Europe, 
particularly in Switzerland, you have, for example, the financial regulator there, um, you know, creating kind of new subcategories uh, in, in which to view these assets. So you have payment tokens, which are like cryptocurrencies. You have asset tokens, which would be securities or derivatives, debt instruments. But you also have utility tokens, as Evan noted, where they would be formally recognized as a as a category of asset. What what seems to need to now follow kind of along the lines of, uh, of Sarah, what you're suggesting is then, well, if there are new categories or subcategories of assets, then we may need new ways that we think about either regulating those assets or, or providing kind of prudential supervision or oversight to those types or categories of assets. And this will be an interesting area as regulators become more comfortable with, you know, how existing regulations apply to crypto assets, they'll soon reach uh, kind of the point that you've suggested of the limitations of those analogies and where, um, where they will need to start thinking of new or different uh, or, or specially designed ways of regulating or overseeing uh, crypto assets. Uh, so, well, that's really interesting, and I and and I really appreciate kind of the the insight on that. Um, we do typically for folks who come on to the uh, the podcast, uh, we give you the opportunity to talk about uh, any kind of upcoming speaking events uh, that you may have, or that in this instance, any conferences or or major milestones that Bitfinex may have coming up. So, anything you might like our uh, our listeners to know about, or might want to to highlight well this is a thank you this is nice of you um actually bitfinex holds a subsidiary called fbinex so a decentralized exchange and there is a summit governance summit coming uh, in september and uh, people are very welcome to go and look online uh, about the details um it will be hosted in lugano and we will be talking about the challenges of decentralization well that's great and uh, very, that'll be very interesting, and we'll we'll very much look forward to uh, to the insights that come out of that. We really appreciate your joining us today on the podcast and sharing some insights about um, about some of the challenges that exchanges face. All right, thank you again to Sarah Campani, uh, and thank you to Maury Shank, uh, to Charles Mills, to Claire Blakey, and to Evan Abrams for joining me today. Uh, this has been episode two twenty nine of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Don't forget, suggest a guest interviewee, uh, and we may send you a highly coveted CyberLaw Podcast mug. Uh, send your comments, questions, and suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, get involved on social media, at uh, Stuart Baker on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Uh, and please, please, please rate the show and leave us a review on iTunes, on Google Play, etc. Uh, this helps new listeners find the podcast, and it also gives us valuable feedback. So we hope that you'll join us next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.